big takeaway of Buddhism is that you shouldn't believe anything is true because you've read it, because an authority said it, or even if I, the Buddha, have said it. You should only believe something is true if you yourself have had an experience of its truthfulness. The Clear on Life Podcast. Clear on Life. Clear on Life. Clear on Life. The Clear on Life Podcast. A journey into finding purpose, meaning, and clarity in life. Welcome to the Clear on Life Podcast. Hey friends, welcome to the Clear on Life Podcast. This episode is part two of my interview with Michael Owens. We explore Buddhism and what it has to say about procrastination, creativity, relationships. I hope you enjoy and get as much out of this episode as I did recording it. My request of you is to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. Here we go. Taking a look at my notes, and mm-hmm. I, I noticed um, I had a few things I'm just curious about. Procrastination. In general? In, in general, and maybe <laughs> if, if, if there's a way to tie them to uh, one of the sutras, yeah. that background. <laughs> well, I mean, procrastination is, it gets us all. It gets <laughs> us all. I think... Some more than others. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think like, so, you know, a, bit, a little bit of Buddhist dharma that for me applies to, to that is twofold. One is, is, is that compassion is not just towards the other it's towards the self. And by that, I mean, is that I, I would not encourage anybody to beat themselves up about procrastinating. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's helpful. Mm. Just stop procrastinating, but don't add the layer of self-defacement and, right, <laughs> and all right. of that. We, you know, be compassionate. But I would also actually even potentially flip it and put it, think about it from a Buddhist perspective in terms of productivity meaning that our modern world is kind of obsessed with productivity. It's almost sort of a requirement for existence. Right. And Buddhism is a little bit not, (laughs) doesn't exactly support that view of life. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Like a productive life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, it's kind of the opposite Ah, in a sense. Okay. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about that? What do you mean? Like it's the opposite. This is my view of Buddhism in that way. Basically, we... Uh, it's hard. It's hard in this modern world because, because we have uh, this emphasis on productivity of whether it's in a job or whether it's creatively or, or what have you. And for the most part, the Buddhists are encouraging stillness and quiet. (laughs) (laughs) It's not productive at all. I mean, you could get, you know, semantic and talk about, I don't know, advancing in one's meditation practice and kind of making progress in that sense. But in the actual modern sense of productivity, either actually producing something, the Buddhists don't see any reason to be involved in all of that. It's kind Mm. of just causing us headaches. (laughs) (laughs) And so there's a way in which procrastination from a Buddhist point of view is like your more innate, you know, your natural state. (laughs) So enjoy it while you can. Yeah, kind of, kind of. Again, I would just refer to my first point, which is not to beat yourself up about it. Mm. And it's more, you know, Buddhism is much more, it's what I love about it. It's so 
relative or relational in that it's like you take something like procrastination, there would be no way, in, in my opinion, for Buddhism to have a, or for there to be a Buddhist opinion on it. And what I mean by that is, is because if someone is working themselves to death, I mean, they're just going and going and going. And then they wake up one day and they just don't feel like doing something because their body's tired, their body needs to rest. But their overproductive sense of self is seeing it as procrastinating or mm. putting it off. Mm. But from so in within that model, no, that person should take a break and enjoy it and relax and mm. not consider it procrastinating. But then you take a different person yeah. who's procrastinating all the time. They're not doing anything. They're right. definitely deep in, in that kind of energy. Then Buddhism would not. It would it, that Buddhist teacher would then have a totally different perspective on that person and procrastinating because it's about something else entirely. Right. Then then it's almost like a disease of some sort. Yeah. 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 Or, or yeah, or, or, uh, like an illness or something to that effect. Sure. That's very interesting. So this idea of procrastination is it's relative and it depends on the culture. To, Certainly. Like, I would even say into the individual's culture, like meaning that individual's household. Yeah, you could have someone just easygoing in a in a family that's super exactly know, strict and like you got to be diligent, got to do X, Y, and Z, and you got to work hard. And mm -hmm. so, so at that point, you know, you just even taking a break, and you're thinking you're procrastinating. Yeah, but you might not be right. And this would be what we're doing now is something more akin to vipassana, mm. the seeing. And what I mean by that is that this practice of seeing or vipassana insight it's in Buddhism, things are never what they seem. Or what I mean by that is, is that procrastination. Okay. But why there's something going on there? It almost becomes like um, analytical psychology or something. In mm -hmm. fact, many people have compared Vipassana to analytical psychology of like, well, but why are you procrastinating? What is it? Mm. And peeling back some layers there and finding out that either you're afraid of something or whatever, whatever, whatever. And then Buddhism would want to deal with that and recognizing that the procrastinating, that's just a symptom of this thing, this deeper thing, whatever that might be. And that's where for me, I say it's relative and depends because Buddhism recognizes that these things that manifest, whether it's procrastination, depression, doubt, all these things, they have, you know, different root causes. I was reading this text on uh, something called internal family system. It's one of the latest uh, modalities for uh, self-therapy. It, it talks about us having various different subpersonalities that are full-blown subpersonalities, not like a multiple personality mm -hmm. disorder, mm -hmm. but we have these parts and that they have their own agendas and their own reasonings and their own triggers and everything else. In that modality, you go in and you look at what is the subpersonality that is afraid of doing something and why are they doing that? So you go talk to them. So, so that's a whole different world, but I can, it's just what you were talking about reminded me of that. Mm -hmm. No, yeah. and that fits in very, very well with the general Buddhist doctrine of what is called no self. The idea that we, we actually don't have one essential permanent self. We are many. Mm. That is the idea. Mm. Then that actually the, Either the pursuit or the belief in one singular self actually just gets us into trouble. <laughs> right. 
Boy, it's hard to dismantle that. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, even according to the Buddhist Dharma, it is it is the natural state of things. The natural state of any sentient being is to to self-reflexively cling to itself, mm-hmm. self-reflexively protect itself. That's the natural state. Mm. And that that self-preservation mode or that clinging to self mode, mm-hmm. the idea of Buddhism is that it got us to a certain point, evolutionarily speaking, but around 3,000 years ago, people started to move beyond that, evolutionarily speaking, meaning that the, the self-reflexive clinging to self for self-preservation it was realized that that could be transcended, mm. let, let go of, mm-hmm. and that the world wouldn't fall apart and we would still be able to eat and survive, but we could actually reach a more transcendent state of being right. by not having that self-reflexive clinging mode. Okay, I like that self-reflexive clinging mode. Yep. Yeah, it's on. It's on, yeah. It's yeah. on and the switch <laughs> is like broken. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. But we have the tools though to... Uh, right. Yeah. Cut the, gre- cut the green wire. Cut the green wire. <laughs> so I've got a few things here about like the sutra lens, which is mm-hmm. to me, this is, I'm just loving this. You know, I'm just fascinated by this. So, so. Oh, well, I'd already mentioned about creativity and art. Yeah. And, yeah. and how I really, for myself and for people that I work with, have found that the art and creativity can really be, what's that word? Like really like kind of sparked and encouraged by these things. And not Mm. that one would necessarily start painting lotus flowers or anything like that, but just that, again, the the mind expansion, that broadening of the mind Mm -hmm. can really, I think, spark creativity and the creation of art. So I think that those fit really well together in a way actually that hasn't, I think, been explored yet. Mm-hmm. Because Buddhism has a rather, I would almost say a rather somber veneer mm-hmm. in, in America. Right. It's kind of like solemn, quiet. Right. You know, and so the idea of like the ecstasy and the joy and all of these kind of more transcendent qualities, I think are a little, well, they're just not at the foreground right now. Right. Yeah. yeah and I totally don't see a problem in really enjoying life and and being very creative and filling your life with colors and uh yeah beauty though you could renunciate those and... oh sure you could re- and yeah you could also uh, renounce uh, depression and boredom too <laughs> oh yeah. yeah where's the pill for that <laughs> yeah, yeah, <really. laughs> now yeah i do think it part of my calling is to sort of enliven buddhism here because we have inherited kind of what I call a funereal kind of Buddhism that comes from East Asia. And it's what a lot of people don't know about Zen. And in fact, kind of most Buddhist traditions that are coming from Asia, whether they're Southeast Asia or East Asia, the role of Buddhists in those countries is to perform funerals. Like it's not self-improvement. It's not wellness. It's not meditation. It's none of that. They perform funeral rites and what they are good at in those countries is organizing mourning ceremonies. And so when folks go to Zen centers in the United States and it's rather somber and quiet and in the morning, the evening vespers in the morning chanting, they're often transferring merit, punya, Mm. to the dead. And that's an old 
meaning, you know, about a thousand year old tradition in Buddhism of transferring merit to the dead. And that's, that's important work and they're doing it. But what happens is, is that then in the seventies or sixties and 1960s and seventies, Buddhism comes here and those cultural traditions come and they don't really tell people that that's what they're doing. Uh, and, yeah. and so everybody thinks that they're going to a Zazen to get enlightened, but they're not, they're going there to transfer merit to the dead <laughs> in a language that they probably don't speak and they're, they wow. don't know that's what's happening. And then they walk away wondering why they feel sort of a little sad mm. or something. And it's mm. because you just participated in a funeral Man, kind of. They did not get the memo. No, no. And wow. it's just, you know, and it's what happens with religions and these traditions when people do it generation after generation after generation, then Roshi, whoever shows up and just teaches you their tradition, mm-hmm. you know? Right, right. And so again, I think it's helpful to be a little critical. I think it's helpful to know the larger history of these things so that you can eventually one day like myself say, Hey, right. They're doing a funeral. <laughs> Wait a minute. No wonder. No, you know? And then, like I said, my calling here is to enliven Buddhism and to bring these more, the, the more psychedelic stuff uh, to the foreground. Cause there have been times in Buddhist history where that was Buddhism, like really mind meld blowing stuff, you know? Oh man. Okay. So <laughs> let's go there for a second. Yeah, yeah. Psychedelic Buddhism. Sure. Without the psychedelics. Yeah. That's what they call the inconceivable. Oh. It is a, it's a realm. Ah. Yeah. Okay. And it, it, it's within the realm of the inconceivable that that's where flowers start falling from the sky and things like that. Is that where, when you see all these uh, Kung Fu movies, animated ones, and there's all this magical stuff happening? Yeah, I would actually, my, my research has shown that that is coming from a Shaolin Chinese Buddhist history where Chinese Buddhism meets Kung Fu or Kung Fu. That kind of melding happened in a medieval period, probably around 08, maybe even earlier, 600, 700 AD. Wow. And so there's been that union. Uh-huh. And then in the Hong Kong cinema and stuff, you will start to see that Buddhist influence mm-hmm. with the flowers and that, or the psychedelia. And now, is, are there sutras for that to take you on those journeys? Yeah, many the the ones that we were talking or that I was talking about are those type, mm-hmm. the kind of kind that will take you to another world. There's sort of various grades of those, <laughs> meaning that they can be rather simple or really really psychedelic. Like we're talking about light rays emanating from the Buddha's teeth, and then those light rays start to sing songs. Whoa. <laughs> okay, that is trippy. Yeah. 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 Wow. So so, so, you, so you're going through this exercise, let's sure. say, and, and you're imagining this. You're yes. imagining the light rays coming out of Buddha's teeth, and yes. then the, the rays themselves Cells. are singing. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and then you'll get a poem. That is what they are singing. And if you keep in mind that these are light rays saying these things... <laughs> It can get pretty interesting. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That, yeah. okay. that is pretty trippy. It's trippy. It's a type of poetry that I just, I love. Mm. And going back to a question you had earlier, I, in, at a certain point, I don't think it has anything to do with Buddhism. You know what I mean? That it's just interesting. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 I'd love to keep talking about that, but I'm, I'm 
curious about one more thing that I really wanted to ask you about. In this day and age, we have a lot of options for everything, whether it's food, whether it's what to wear, what to do in the evenings. I personally feel uh, paralysis because of so many choices. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I'm fortunate to have this cohort of old professors of mine and graduate students and all of that. So keep really good company, a uh, Buddhist company, all walks of life, you know, right. from monks to professors, mm -hmm. really, really mm -hmm. have a lot of different people to talk to. And mm -hmm. I have, there's a professor, he's a retired professor now at Berkeley named Lewis Lancaster. Mm -hmm. If you study Buddhism academically, you know who this guy is because he was one of the granddaddies of translating uh, this stuff in English, doing studies of it. Really interesting guy. He once told me something ab about the being inundated with choices in this modern world that I thought was really interesting. And it's not so much what Buddhism has to offer, but actually what someone like myself has to offer. Mm -hmm. And what he said to me, what Lewis Lancaster said was that it going into this new century with the access that we have to everything in that way, right. that curation will be the future meaning that when one is encountering so much one will need a curator who is knowledgeable to be able to select things from that vast amount of choices so that somebody who's interested will have a, a smaller selection to choose from so curating mm -hmm. you know in the same way that a museum has a curator because they have so much stuff in the warehouse right. that they need someone to carefully select which things to show. And so I, I think of myself as a curator in that way. There are 84,000 sutras. And not only that, I mean, there's, there's the 84,000 sutras and they're all in Tibetan and they're all in Chinese and they're all in Japanese and they're all in, you know, and so which language, what time period, which sutra, it's a lot. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so that's where someone like myself wants to be a guide. You know, I really love this information and I feel like I can curate an interesting selection of sutras for then people to choose or learn from or what have you. I mean, that's a great service. So I can see how people are realizing that that's a problem. Yeah. 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 Especially in... You know, because it would be one thing, too, if you just had all the choices, but then there's so much, call it fake news or whatever, but just even, you know, on top of all the choices, you have all the stuff that's not actually really choices. They've just been thrown in there alongside it. Or even like taking like sutras, for example, there's these, what we've been calling 84,000 sutras, but there's also like thousands and thousands of more that in my opinion, you know, shouldn't even be considered, shouldn't, you know, these are the forgeries, these are the apocrypha, these mm -hmm. are the, the, the ones that were written thousand years later and, you know, all of that. And so the curation process is, first of all, just stripping out all of the, the superfluous that isn't even should be considered in that sense. And that requires a certain person to make that decision and then curate from that what's left. Michael, this is amazing. I'm curious about marriage and dating. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, Buddhists <laughs> used to renounce the world and just yes. be in their own 
caves, I guess, right? <laughs> um, definitely the encouraged community. I mean, mm-hmm. that's one of the three jewels is the Sangha, the community. Right. So there was never really a prescription to renounce uh, society, like renounce other people. But yes, <laughs> the renunciation of sex, sexuality, that's been part of it. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's important, always important for the student to keep in mind that Buddhism started as a, an ascetic renunciatory meditation path. Like that was all it was, is that if you, if you were ready to commit to a lifetime of meditation, then a requisite would be celibacy, you know, but we all are not renunciants. And even within the lifetime of the Buddha, he had to deal with the fact that not everybody was going to renounce. And so then what do you do with everybody who's not ready to renounce, but wants to practice or wants to progress in some way? And so Buddhism very quickly started dealing with what it called sexual misconduct. Mm. You know, basically Buddhist groups split into different Buddhist groups on how they interpret these types of um, secondary rules because the primary rules will be for the renunciants. Got it. But then Buddhism had to start dealing with everybody else. And so, so no sexual misconduct. But then what does that mean? Right. And so a different teacher or a different group will establish itself for having this definition, what that means. Okay. You know, and, you know, there's so many examples of all of this, but if you want to kind of move ahead in time, it's kind of well known that Japanese Zen priests get married and have children. They have for a very long time. And there's kind of interesting cultural, economic, historical reasons why that happened. And mainly it was that during a certain period, if a monk was an abbot running a monastery or a temple and he died, the state or whatever ruling feudal lord of that area could just come and acquire the monastery. Mm. If that priest had a child, he could pass the temple on to his heir, which was recognized part of Japanese society that a firstborn male had the right by heir to their father's property. And so Buddhism kind of changed the rules in Japan and said, well, we got to start getting married and having children. And so they started doing that. And so Zen Japanese Zen Buddhism is unique because they get married and have kids, whereas most traditions are not, you know, that's what separates laity from monastics is that. And then in the modern, modern world, I've been to my share of Buddhist uh, weddings. And then they, so now they've even had to move past, well, you know, what do we do if they don't want to renounce? What do we do if they are not monks? Right. Well, then we'll tell them to, you know, no hanky panky or no funny stuff or, you know, we'll try to explain it. But then what do we do if they want to get married? I mean, that's like definitely not what the Buddha the Buddha clearly in, in all of the sutras never had to deal with marriage. And so again, modern Buddhist organizations who are going to do that, who are going to promote marriage and then officiate it, they've had to come up with vows that sound Buddhist because <laughs> there just aren't, you know, <laughs> they have to, they had to wow. come up with criteria. Right. You know, and, and going to the sutras, Someone, let's say someone has having like relationship issues or uh, trouble in marriage. Yep. Are there sutras that are like prescribable for those scenarios or is are sutras more for like the self, but not in the context of uh, a, a relationship 
I, you'd have to get a little creative Mm. and by that, I mean, yeah, you will not find a sutra where the Buddha gives any advice (laughs) for (laughs) a healthy marriage or let alone a healthy, uh, relationship. Buddha, the relationship expert. However, there are a number of sutras that do speak about, uh, I guess what you would call social cohesion. And there are these sutras that are things the Buddha said to his community that would encourage social cohesion, that would encourage the group to stay together and avoid what they called schisms or breaking apart. Mm. And it's been my experience, and again, the way I teach this, is that one can read a sutra like that, pull out the wisdom, and then apply that to a marriage. So that even though the Buddha is talking to a large group of monks, specifically to their way of life, the advice, though, is, for example, with, within the Sangha, you basically are not to talk about anybody that's not in the room. That's considered bad speech to do that. And I think that there's a way in which you could translate that into any relationship, even just the general precept of avoiding false speech or speaking truthfully. That's prescribed for the community to maintain social cohesion, but also any good relationship or marriage, in my opinion, has to be built on people speaking truthfully to each other. And what about Tantra? I know there's a lot of misunderstanding on what that is Mm -hmm. and where it really came from. I I guess there's a flavor of it in the U.S. right now. Sure. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Tantrism is a broad kind of category, which I would call a way of being religious. Mm. And what I mean by that is that you can find Christian Tantra, you can find Jewish Tantra, you can find tantra in anything because essentially what that kind of idea will mean it's not what the word means but what the idea of tantra will mean is that up until now we have been saying you shouldn't do x y and z well we're gonna say actually that in these certain situations you can do x y and z but you have to be careful about it or, you know, there'll be all kinds of prescriptions about it. Originally, the Buddhist prescription for desire was that if you had something that was that you were attached to or something that you were clinging to or desirous of, the prescription was to get away from it. If you really enjoy this thing, then go away from that thing and try to forget about it. And that was the original prescription, which was it's kind of a, a form of avoidance a certain wisdom to it too, that if you have a problem drinking, you should probably stay out of bars. But then what happens is, is that Buddhism goes through these changes in which a lot of things start to get reincorporated back into it. Things like tantrism. So this is a pre-existing practice in India way before the Buddha, this idea of flipping things on their head and kind of going counterculture. And so eventually, even though Buddhism in its original version seemed to have said no tantra, don't do the flipping, <laughs> don't do the flipping thing. They seem to have started doing it at a certain point in India and it caught on. And so what that means is, is that from a tantric point of view, if you have an inclination or a desire towards something, rather than fighting it, there are techniques for using that innate energy you already have, that innate desire. There's techniques for harnessing it and using that to sort of pull you into enlightenment. So rather than achieving enlightenment by foregoing the desire, there's a way of kind of going through the desire. This, w- this is what a tantrist would say, is that you go through the desire. 
Right. And, Got it. And I guess that could be applied to more than just uh, sexual desires, right? Oh, yeah. And I tried to avoid making it about sex, even though it is usually, but it's actually about... At least about, in the U.S. Yeah, know. yeah. And it, but, you know, traditionally it would be either sex, intoxicants... Those are kind of the two in Buddhism where sexuality mm. and intoxicants are are forbidden or are not advised. But within the tantric practice, they can be used. And even that is, you know, there's a lot to that. Could you apply that to wanting to create things and being creative? So an artist loves to paint and could that be a tantric practice? Uh, yes, and that would be a, a really good way, I think, of thinking about it because, yes, the word Tantra and the idea of Tantra has become almost synonymous with sexuality. Like, that's just what Tantra means is is sex. But like I've said, I've been kind of emphasizing this. Uh, it's about these desires and things like that. And I think, yes, that traditionally Buddhism would be rather non-creative. Right. Yeah. Right? Because yeah, it's yeah, very... Yeah quiet, still not really doing much. And so I would actually see the creation of art and that outflow of creativity within a Buddhist context to be a tantric move or potentially tantric for sure. Can artists then take advantage of what's already there? Exactly. Is- exactly. Okay. So rather than fighting these things, you again, using that energy, but the mm. idea of tantra, and I should, I feel obliged to say this, The idea of Tantra is that most people can't do that. Most people have such a problem with their desires that to lean into them is not good. (laughs) So, (laughs) so I want to emphasize that even within the world of Buddhism, real Tantra is reserved for an elite few, but I like your idea of of seeing art and creativity as a Tantra, as a form of Tantra. Right. Isn't there anything like that already out there? Like where you're actually going towards being more free and through a practice of creating some art or, I mean, maybe the closest thing I can think of is like painting is therapy. Yeah. I think it's, it's kind of helpful to focus on the more, not the, the expression of it, whether it's with a, a paintbrush or writing or sex or whatever, not the expression of it. I think it's helpful to think about the root of it, which is that we have these desires and that normally Buddhism is saying suppress those desires Mm -hmm. and don't, you know, Buddhism is nice because it's saying don't suppress them aggressively, you know, like, like really suppressing them, but through like kind of patient, calm waiting, there's a stillness that has arrived regarding those desires. And so the original prescription of Buddhism is just sit still and everything will calm down. But I think there's a way in which within the tantric community, the idea is, is that that can be a kind of a form of escapism or a kind of just ignoring the problem. And so the idea of confronting that desire head on might be the move because you might be in the proverbial cave and you're nowhere near the thing that you, you are desirous of, but you can't get it out of your mind. Right. But, but if you actually acted it out, maybe you're done e- with it. Exactly. And that is actually the tantric practice is this kind of going through it to eventually still abandon it. Right? We want to get to the same place here. <laughs> that's the other thing that's sometimes missed, I think, in the, in the discourse around tantra. 
the goal is the same, right? It's just an idea that we have that everybody's different in that way. So the idea would be use your desires to actually get past them. Yes. But you're going through them. You're not avoiding them. You're actually going to embrace it and actually go with it. Yes. I don't teach tantrism. It's definitely as a practice. Tantra is nine times out of 10 is done with a guru is mm. done with a teacher because the idea is, is that because we are desirous of these things, we wouldn't really have the skill set to navigate them without guidance. And so the reason why I'm going to just put the brakes on this is that I'm not that kind of guru. Got it. And even if I were that type of guru, that type of advice is, is a one-on-one basis. It's, there's no one size fits all. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is, um, I think that covers a lot of the things I had questions wise for you. I had the chance to actually check your book out. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I had just, uh, finished self publishing a novel, a historical fiction, uh, about a Chinese Buddhist monk in the Tang dynasty. It's kind of a, what I call a Buddhist adventure novel that I've been working on that for a long time. That was sort of a a doctoral project I never finished. It was mm-hmm. a bunch of research I did. I, I was at Princeton work doing a PhD research and I started researching this event that happened in China. It was basically a religious persecution of Buddhism that happened in uh, between 840 and 845 that pretty much wiped Buddhism out of China. It was a really weird, dark period in Chinese history that not a lot of people have heard about or know about. And so I started writing a paper about it and then that just turned into notes upon notes that sat for a long time. And then I decided to fictionalize a story about that moment in history. So I just self-published that book. And then I have a bunch of these uh, sutra translations that are ready to go. We're just kind of working right now on the, the, the graphics of it, just putting like you know, the cover design and stuff. Will these be out as so? So what, what's your uh, novel called? So the novel is called A Sacrifice of Monks. And when can we see it in stores? Everything's coming next year. Next year. Yeah, Sometime yeah. next year. Yes. And what about the sutra translation? Are these going to be books or yes. online? Or? So they're going to be, first they're going to be printed, and then there will eventually be an online resource, but that's not mm-hmm. even in the docket yet. Mm-hmm. Right now it's all print format. And there's five sutras that I have more or less ready to go. Two of them are ready, are ready to go. And so basically come January and February of next year, those are going to come out and then kind of a slow, steady release of these sutra translations, as well as a meditation guidebook, like my oh, own. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Kind of the four beginners, the basics, really like getting to the root of Buddhist meditation practice and just trying to create a simple guidebook for that. That is that useful? Like having some meditation basics down helps with the consumption of sutras. Oh, absolutely, it does. Yes. Okay. Yeah, okay. I think you can you can get pretty far, you know, in a cafe with some coffee and just reading them. Yeah. But if you couple it with a, a seated practice, the the calming that we were talking about, right. the seeing is greatly improved. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Uh, yeah, and basically all those are the sutra books, my book the guidebook, a few other projects are all coming out via Lotus Underground, which is this um, company I'm starting next year. Mm -hmm. 
thank you so much. This was a pleasure. My pleasure. And whoever's listening, if if they're interested in contacting you, is it through SoundCloud or can they get, get you via um, a different channel? Yeah, so my email address and all that is on the SoundCloud. I'm also on Instagram, B-L-E-U, B-U-D-D-H-A, Bleu Butte. Mm. That's just my personal Instagram, but you can also kind of contact me through there. My email's on there. And through the San Francisco Dharma Collective website. Okay. And um, so big shout out to uh, San Francisco Dharma Collective. Big shout out. Yeah. Sponsoring this podcast. They <laughs> they were generous enough to uh, give us the space to record. And thank you so much, Michael. All right. Okay. Bye.